The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Why Should I Care About Israel? An interview with Alain Giorno. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Philosophy for Living on Earth. I'm David Birnbaum and we're very happy you're joining us. Today, I'm going to be joined by uh, Elon Giorno, and we're going to be talking about why should I care at all about Israel? Thank you, Elon. Hi, David. Um, so let's jump right into it, because it, this is a question that I think is quite important. You know, I hear a lot about how bad Israel is, to be frank. Like, I hear a lot of noise about this. And the thing that I'm most concerned, the thing I'm most wondering about is why it gets so much attention. You know, there's lots of countries that do lots of bad things, but I hear about Israel so much. And the, the only two arguments I've ever heard is one, that it has to do with anti-Jewish sentiment. And two, the other best argument I've heard is that it's literally arbitrary and someone just chose to get mad about Israel and if someone chose to get mad about China, we'd also be talking about China this much. So I, I, I think that's a good place to kind of just jump in. Why is it Israel that we talk about so much? Well, I, I think there are other arguments and reasons. And, and I, I mean, some of what you're raising is actually going on. So I think there is some element of anti-Jewish sentiment or anti-Israel sentiment. I, I don't think it's primary or the sort of the most important factor. The some of the issues that come up and I think they're important and it's, it, we should sort of work to unpack them a bit is one reason Israel is, is pointed to is it's accused of doing things to the Palestinians and it's accused of having a role in the Middle East that yeah. is uh, destructive. And so those are two related claims. The one about the Palestinians is that Israel is unjust to them. It's doing things that are wrong and there's, right. a, there's a moral issue. And I, you can understand why people who are animated by moral ideas would say, wait a minute, if, if, the, if they're doing wrong to a group of people, I, I want to know what's going on. I want to, I want to write it. I want to correct the wrong. And the other yeah. kind of issue that comes up is Israel is, is, is seen as having a role in the Middle East, which is related to its treatment of the Palestinians. And the argument there has been so long as Israel is maltreating the Palestinians, so long as their desire for a, a homeland is unfulfilled, yeah. Therefore, there's going to be constant conflict in the region, and, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is seen as sort of the epicenter of regional problems and instability. Now, now those are not the only reasons people point to it, but I think those are some of the, so there's kind of three issues, right? What you name, which is sort of anti-Jewish sentiment, the mm -hmm. Palestinian issue, and then the regional issue. But I yeah. think what, the point you raise is really interesting because um, if you zoom out a bit, Right. This is, right. I think, what you're, you're kind of reacting to, which is if you look at the the actual record on on individual rights of Israel versus all the countries in the region next to it, sort of the neighboring countries, or even places like China or places like uh, Russia, uh, it's actually, and this is surprising to people, it it's it's a far freer society than any of its neighboring regimes, and so there's a there's a way in which it's being singled out. Yeah. Uh, and I can understand people getting. I think I, I'm I'm upset by it because I think it's unjust and it's un, it's not really grounded in reality. So mm -hmm. there's a kind of peculiarity to why it's it's uh, there's so much focus on it. Um, and I I mean you go on yeah. So what? Why is it that it gets that much focus then? Because it is peculiar. There has to be some. You, you pointed out the three reasons people have issues with it, but why is it highlighted so much? And, you know, for example, at the UN as well, there's lots of resolutions against Israel and not that many against um, many other countries with far worse human rights records. Yeah, no, so the, that, the answer to that particular issue of why has it got so much attention at the UN is uh, partly answered by the fact of how the UN operates and in effect, the UN um, is run, so my summary of the UN, I have very low opinion of the UN, it's run by and for dictatorial regimes. 
And in effect, the way they vote and operate is to shield themselves from criticism of their own violation of rights and, uh, and freedom. And they, they sort of deflect and they, and, they, and they gang up on other countries that they hate. And there's, there's a particular animus towards Israel for some of the reasons I mentioned, and yeah. it's reflected at the UN. And so, I mean, the, the, the telling, uh, the, the, I forget the statistics, I don't have the, the latest one, but in my book, What Justice Demands, I, I cite, which analyzes the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I, I cite the, the number of times Israel is cited, um, is criticized at the UN with resolutions for its treatment and, and its record on individual rights. And whatever you think of what it's doing, and you might say some of them are valid and some of them are not, you have to investigate, you want to look at the facts. What I think discredits the whole apparatus at the UN that looks at rights is the fact that there, there, were, there was nothing like the same kind of attention to what's happening in Syria, where there's a civil war yeah. in which the dictator is gassing his own people, bombing them, and it, it, there's no freedom in Syria, and Syria is not nearly given the same kind of attention, or to take North Korea. North right. Korea, the criticisms, are get, and it's been criticized, but not nearly as much as Israel, and, and it's, there's a real disconnect here between the facts and sort of the evaluation. So I think if you look at the piece, what's going on at the UN, a big part of it is it's sort of a reflection of the wider culture where there's this animus towards Israel as a free society. And at the UN, um, bad countries, in effect, unfree countries, dictatorial countries, are able to have an outsized influence and use the sort of the UN as a club against a particular country. Uh, now, if you ask the wider question, why has it gotten so much attention? I think it's, it, it's essentially because I think widely understood there's a moral issue at stake in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or, in, or sometimes it's seen as Israel's right to exist, which I think is a, right. a strange way to frame it, but that's one way it's understood. So the question is, well, why does it exist? Why does it have a right to exist? And wrapped up with that is the question of its relationship with the Palestinians, or, or previously it was understood as the Arab, uh, Arab states nearby. And the moral issue, I think, for me, and, and this is what I think really matters here is it's the key issue in order to understand what's going on in the middle east one has to unpack this moral issue and understand are the accusations leveled against israel and its adversaries what are they how should we understand them? and what and, and this is this is the the piece that i think a lot of people stumble on because um you know i i i mean so i don't remember how long ago you left college but i visit colleges uh, often when i give talks and I yeah. get talks about this subject often. And one of the issues is this animates people, young people, very powerfully. And I think partly because um, when a lot of the times when people are college age, they're, they're idealistic. And in, it's a good thing to be idealistic, to, to want to live by ideals. And they think they're, they're presented with a, a certain narrative of the Israeli-Palestinian issue or Israel's role in the region that is morally freighted it's like it's loaded with moral significance and israel yeah. is presented as the villain so what happens is they're they think they're on the, they're crusading for a moral cause by siding against israel and my answer to them is they should be concerned with with what justice demands here they should be concerned with the moral issue but they're but the way people think about justice or morality in this context is completely wrong and so yeah. the framing that comes along with this is not the right framing to understand sort of the complex history um basically the way people think of it is that our concern should be so we should give automatic sympathy to the underdog or the the, the side right. that looks weaker and more most suffering and I mean, we should be concerned about people who are suffering and who are, who are on the weak side, but that doesn't automatically mean that they're in the right or that it, it sh we should just discontinue our, our quest to understand what's going on. Because you can be very weak and very evil <laughs> at the same time, and you can be very strong and very, very moral, and, and, and the opposite of each of those, right? You can be weak and, and innocent and, and strong and innocent and, and strong and, and weak. So, there's a real confusion about what the moral issues that are here. And I think that's partly why people's focus is sort of zoomed in um, on Israel. And, and uh, I mean, one of the sort of detail here, which is important is it's, there's a way in which Israel deserves more attention because it, it's an, an achievement in the sense that 
in, a, in an area of the world that is blighted by dictatorships and the, theocracies and, and just anarchy, here's a, here's a basically Western society fundamentally free that's economically vibrant, technologically advanced, and this, where the standard of living is really uh, high and, and people are basically free. They're able to do what they, they judge best for themselves. And so from a positive perspective, we should be interested in that. We should understand how that came about. What, what is it and what are the problems with it? Like what, what are they getting wrong? What are they getting right? So if you're all concerned with human freedom, with human progress, there is a lot to be interested in here um, and to be concerned about. So I have a, one thing that comes to mind is around how it seems to me that a lot of people do think morality is quite simple and they just try and fight for who they view to be more oppressed, which is what led to the founding of Israel. People were on the Jews' side very briefly immediately after World War II. But I'm interested in, do you think people are more opposed to Israel because of their the alleged fail, like mistreatment of the Palestinians or are people opposed to it because of its flourishing as a Western nation, as a democratic nation, because there's the hatred of the good and then there's the admission that no, it's not perfect, there are flaws. And I don't even know what degree the actual, like it's hard to know how badly, for lack of a better term, they're actually treating the Palestinians. I think some of both of those are going on. And it depends on which people you're thinking of, and, and sort of, and there could be mixed motivations and just confusion. So it's hard to say on the whole. Uh, I think uh, there's definitely the issue of uh, there are people who resent Israel's success, and I think that is a real phenomenon, particularly in the Middle East. And but there are also people who look at it and say, "I wish my country was more like that." You know, there and. I, there are people who, who, and I think it's courageous of them to say, because it's, it's, if you want to think about politically incorrect, there's, it's, it's a forbidden thought in many countries to, to, to realize yeah. it. See different reasons people react to it, but the, um, the kind of the, the Palestinian, the treatment of Palestinians is definitely at the core of, uh, what's seen as a moral stain against Israel, because it's it goes back to historic. It's not only in the contemporary sort of present tense that we're people are concerned about, which there's issues to be concerned about. It's also sort of historical wrongs, and there are numerous grievances that people on the Palestinian side will put forward. And 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 what happens is so there's a kind of cascade. So Israel has this is the argument. Israel has treated the Palestinians badly in the past. It continues to treat them badly in the present. And anyone, and particularly the U.S., which has been supportive of Israel, anyone who enables that or anyone who's on the side of that or, or, or is seen to be complicit, they're part of the problem. And so this is the way in which it, it sort of uh, it, it pulls in American foreign policy as a big part of this uh, uh, issue. Um, the other thing I would say it, it, that is worth pointing out um, so you framed the question at the beginning, why should I care at all about Israel? And my answer to that is you shouldn't, there's no sort of duty, there's no should about it. And the kind of the, the kind of answers people often give, I think are really bad and really wrong. And, and so if you're, if you talk to evangelical Christians, it's, you should care because it's the site of a biblical prophecy and the end of days are going to start there or something. You know, there's, there's this whole sort of religious perspective and Israel's existence validates certain things that the Christians, certain Christians believe. I think that's not a good defense or a good argument for being concerned with something. Um, or there are religious Jews who will say, no, there's, there's a religious collective tribal claim to for Israel. And I think both of those are problematic in, and they don't really, they're not, a, they're not a good defense of Israel. And it needs a defense in the sense of you've already raised ways in which it's embattled. Uh, they're not good. So in that sense, many of the pro-Israel positions that are very salient or that you people have run into or come across, they're not good arguments and they they undermine Israel by making it, sort of defending it on grounds that are very uh, weak. They're building it on, sort of building a case on sand. And then just to go back to you asked how Palestinians treat it. And I think we could talk more about that because I think it's a really important question. 
But there, then the people who are against Israel and who side with the Palestinians, a lot of students are in this category. They, they feel solidarity with the suffering of Palestinians. And there's real problems that we should um, worth emphasizing. But, the, but my analysis is that the, anyone who really cares about individual human beings, whether in Israel or among the Palestinians or elsewhere in the Middle East, if that's your focus, and that's my concern, like real irreplaceable human beings and, and their lives and freedom, if that's what you care about, anyone who's pro-Palestinian is actually hostile to the Palestinian individuals because it means endorsing their leadership and the movement that is that claims to represent Palestinians. And that movement has been, so I, I mean, that movement has been really destructive of not just in its attacks on Israel and that people, that's not controversial. It's, it's created real harm and, and killed lots of people, but it's actually done, um, it, it, it's um, tyrannized, it's trampled the rights of Palestinians, the very people whose freedom and welfare this movement claims to be concerned with uh, and, and seeks to right wrongs that have done. It, it's a it's a movement that perpetuates massive injustices and destroys the freedom of the very people it's trying, it, it claims to care about. So in that sense, um, I'm not either pro-Israel, pro-Palestine, I'm pro-individual and, and I recognize, and, I, and that means individuals who care about their own life and freedom, wherever they are, wherever they stand. Um, and it's not, there's some loyalty to some country, it's, Israel is on the right side of this issue, as I argue at length in my book, and we, you can prod that more if you want, but it's pre precisely and only to the extent that it is better protecting freedom. And then the Palestinian uh, movement and, and its sort of political entity, uh, sort of a state, not quite a state, um, it's not that it fails to protect freedom. It's not at all geared to protect freedom. It's, it's a, basically a, a beginning dictatorship. Um, so in that sense, it's the, the the framing that I would bring to this is if you if you care about individuals you should care about societies that are free or attempt or or make real inroads to be free versus societies that crush freedom and, and create new dictatorships or theocracies which is sort of the way to think about these two sides I think that makes a lot of sense and I want to dive into that a little more but first I want to go back to sort of the positive aspects of Israel that is it, as it's seen from the US and, and US foreign policy. And it seems so important to US foreign policy, but is that only because it is for individual rights? Is it just, it's the most, uh, like it's the best ally we have because of that only? Or is there additional, is there something additional as to why it's important to us as a nation, let's say? So I think there are two parts to that. One is, what is this central character of Israel as a, as, a, as a state, as a sort of its legal and political institutions, and what's the standard we judge it by? And then there's the question of it, its role with respect to America and what makes it an ally? Is it a good ally? So on what makes, so how to judge Israel, basically. And I think the standard there is human life and what human life requires, what we need to prosper. And that I argue is we need freedom. We need political and economic freedom. And the more, the better. And, if, and, and the closer you approach that ideal, the better the society that you create. And that to me is the, 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 the basis for evaluating Israel and saying that it's, it's a basically good society in that there is real political freedom. There is freedom of religion. There's freedom of speech. Uh, whether you're a man or a woman, gay or straight, whether you're Muslim or Christian or an atheist or a Jew or whatever, or some other minority group, you, if you're a citizen, you can vote. And if you want to serve in government, you can serve in government. You can be a prime minister if you're a woman. You're not, you're not made a second-class citizen as you are in places like Saudi Arabia, where up until, what, a year and a half, two years ago, women were not allowed to drive. And, and it was laughable, but really sad at the same time, because the norm in the Middle East is, is what we saw in Europe 200 plus years ago, which is there's real um, subordination of women, or what you might call gender apartheid. They're not full human citizens, the full human beings and citizens. And, and gays, well, I mean, to, to say that they're being dehumanized in the Middle East is to put it mildly. Um, mm -hmm. 
And if you care about human beings and individuals, you should care about these things uh, and including religious uh, freedom. Now, I'm not religious, I'm an atheist. And, but I think of it as the wider category of intellectual freedom. So to believe or not to believe some religion. And, and if you go next door to some other countries in the region or Europe several hundred years ago, it was a crime not to believe what was the official doctrine. And in Israel, it doesn't matter what you believe or don't believe. And so there's, in key respects, it is a free society. And you see this in measures of human well-being, such as infant mortality, life expectancy, economic measures. And it really outpaces all of its neighbors precisely because it, the extent to which it's free and it protects, it, it goes a long way to protecting individual rights. That's, so that's the standard. Now, I mean, there, there are problems. It doesn't do it perfectly. And there's things I criticize harshly. And I think the, the, the blurring of religion and state in Israel is a real problem that needs to be addressed. But it's basically a free society, just as um, the United Kingdom is. And it has its problems, but it's basically a free society. Um, so that's the basic way of thinking in terms of what it, to evaluate Israel and why I think it stands on the, on the right side of this. And then on the issue of what makes it an ally or, or, or um, what makes it a particularly good ally to the U.S., I think part of this has to be uh, understood in the wider context of what's happening in the Middle East and what's been happening for 30, almost 40 years now, which is the region has, um, what's rising as a, as a movement in the region is the jihadist movement or the Islamist movement. And this is the idea of imposing Islamic rule as a total system on society by force and kind of conquering lands in the name of Allah. And this is represented by groups like Al-Qaeda, more recently by ISIS or the Islamic State, and by regimes like Saudi Arabia and Iran, and there's many other subgroups and fractions and so on. Um, so this has been a rising uh, movement across the region and it's been rising within the Palestinian movement too. It's become more jihadist over time. So what, what I think is essential to understand is that the, the enemies that Israel faces in its neighborhood and the ones that it faces among the Palestinians are, is basically the jihadist movement. That's the primary, that's the vanguard of the hostility toward it to the extent they're, they're, that is an ongoing thing. And that's, if we look at the region from the perspective of Washington, if you're sitting uh, there, what is it that we should be concerned about? And I think the jihadist movement is the big story about the Middle East for the last 40 years. We haven't, up until 9-11, people didn't really get that, but that the 9-11 was a moment of clarity, or should have been a moment of clarity to understand, okay, it, it isn't just that this region is chaotic. It's, there's a certain um, pattern to what's going on. There's a certain pattern to the ideas animating the certain regimes and, and movements that are hostile to the U.S. So in effect, we have, sim we have the same enemy. So in that respect, we share a common enemy. And then on the, on the other side of it is we have common values and common interests, like being uh, basically free societies that pr protect the value of the individual and the freedom of the individual. So there's real common ground in terms of positive values and real concerns about shared um, sort of shared enemies, their enemies and our enemies are, they're sort of, a, they're essentially similar in their hostility. All right, um, that makes sense. And I think that gives a good overview of why it is important to talk about. I wanna take a second to just remind everyone who's watching to feel free to submit questions. In about 10 minutes, we'll be doing Q&A with the audience and on Zoom, you have a Q&A uh, button as well so you can submit questions there. I wanna jump, jump on something you said, you mentioned the idea of gender apartheid, and that brings to mind, you know, many protests I saw on campus calling it Israeli apartheid. And you mentioned as well that if you're a citizen of Israel, you have all of these rights, but there's this, correct me if I'm wrong, many Palestinians aren't citizens. And, and so are they then second class? And like, how do you deal with the, the issues of, quote, Israeli apartheid and other mistreatments of the Palestinians in the area. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, for, for people listening who might not remember what the origin of apartheid is, let's just set some context. So apartheid was a system in place in South Africa for many, many years. It ended in the early 90s. And what apartheid did is define society racially. If you were white, you were, in effect, you had freedoms that uh, blacks didn't and blacks were 
legally and um, by force prevented from doing certain things. They couldn't work in certain roles. They couldn't be out at certain hours of the day. Uh, and they couldn't, I think you couldn't even marry white people. So it was a really horrific system, a racist system that was institutionalized and forced brutally. And it, it's just an abomination. So that's apartheid in its original context. Now it's, it's being transferred and, and, and the, the narrative is it's, it's applied to Israel with respect to some of its citizens. And the argument is there's apartheid in Israel between the Jews or the Israelis, however you think of them, and the Arabs or the Palestinians. And, and some of the arguments here are, so I don't think that's a valid analogy. And, and for a number of reasons, and I'll, I'll mention what they are. But I do think there are problems in Israel in its treatment of Palestinians and its treatment of its Arab citizens. But I don't think it, I think the, the apartheid uh, analogy is, is a gross overstatement and really just sort of colors the issue in a way that's not objective. Uh, so you mentioned there's, there's um, Palestinians. Well, let's unpack this a bit because I want you to get some of the complexity here. So, yeah. Um, and I mentioned, yes, yeah, so if you're a citizen, you have all these rights as civil rights that I mentioned. And that means, so that here are the groups that we're, we're talking about. There are uh, Jews or Israelis who are of various ethnic backgrounds, European, Middle Eastern, and so on. And whether they're religious or not, let's just call them Israelis and they're, who are citizens. Then you have about 20% of the population of citizens who are Arabs. Now, Arab is a very broad term. Uh, my grandparents were Arabs <laughs> of Jewish background. So you can be an Arab and you can be a Muslim or a Christian or technically a Jew or an atheist and or some other, there's many other uh, religions that you can be and be an Arab. And there's, there's different denominations of Christianity, different sects of Islam. So the Arab population within Israel is variegated in that sense, ideologically and politically. But there's 20% of them are citizens and they have all of the rights that I mentioned. So that's, that's one community. And, and confusingly, sometimes they're referred to as Palestinians, though not all of them identify as that because it's a political term more than it is any kind of other. Um, and it's not, none of these terms are very easy to define. Uh, so, okay, so that's one, other, one group. Then you have two major pockets of Palestinians. One is the West Bank, which is the area between, sort of on the border between Israel and Jordan, if people look at the map. Um, and that area is partly run by a Palestinian political entity and partly run by Israel. And then you have another community in the south along the Mediterranean, just north of the border with Egypt, which is the Gaza Strip, which is another very highly high population density group. And that is another group of Palestinians. So the, the accusation of apartheid is very sweeping. It, it's basically saying there are um, uh, sometimes it's referring to the Arab citizens of Israel and it's, it's the argument is they're treated as second class citizens. Um, I don't think literally that's true. I think what they face is a combination of some pri sort of personal prejudices among some people and, and racism sometimes. Uh, and sometimes they're, they're disadvantaged by government policies, which is really bad. And, and there's people who fight that and, and there's been famous court cases so I think they face those kinds of problems. I don't think that comes even close to saying it's apartheid because these are people who can run and they can be in the police force. They can run and they can, they have parties in government, in government. So there's a real disanalogy there. Um, and the more you look into it, the more you realize that this is not at all the way to think of it though. The, though, as I said, there's, there's um, both private and government problems that you would want to address and, and that are not right. And I think this is a real problem. Then if you look at the way the Palestinians who live in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are treated, that's another way in which there's a, a claim of apartheid. And here this becomes um, what's important, uh, what, an important fact to understand is that um, since about 1993, um, so if you kind of, this is where it gets really complicated, but uh, yeah. let me just give a little bit of backstory. So before 1993 for about four, 30 years or so, Israel ruled both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank as um, sort of areas that it administers, but it didn't fully uh, assert its sovereignty. And under the end of that time, um, the people living there had a fair amount of freedom. They could 
work in Israel, but there were restrictions and partly because, mainly because there were uh, terrorist cells among those populations. So there had to be some control. And I'm not saying that the way they managed those populations was great, but they're, as measured by standard of living, both of those populations really were elevated during the time of Israel's occupation of them. Since 1993, and this is the, this is the fact that I want to raise in the context of the apartheid, since 1993, um, there has been progressive control of those by the Palestinian movement, so its leadership. And so they kind of had the responsibility of running those uh, and administering the populations in Gaza and the West Bank. And what happened is that both of those uh, communities became uh, authoritarian priest, almost states in effect. And th there really was no, the, the freedom that they, the, whatever freedom they had under Israel's administration really deteriorated and basically vanished to the point where uh, in Gaza, there's, there's Hamas, which is an Islamist group that believes in sort of the vision of Islamic state. They, they haven't got that far. They haven't fully implemented what they want to do, but that's, that's the path they're taking. So if you look at those two communities and you say, well, um, Israel doesn't treat them fairly. Well, nobody's treating them fairly. <laughs> Israel's not primarily administering their lives. It's not ruling them in the, in the way. The Palestinian leadership that is ruling them is trampling their rights. And yeah, that's the problem. Why are you calling that apartheid? I mean, I don't think anyone thinks living in those areas is a good, is a good thing. Um, and I think the other issue about apartheid is it's, it's really, so I've mentioned ways in which it's disanalogous to the original apartheid and in which, and it's not historically accurate, even if they're, they're real problems. But the other issue here is it's super myopic. It's super short-sighted in, in, you know, I mentioned gender apartheid and I mean that really. So if you go to Saudi Arabia, go to Iran, in, in Iran, there are women who are forced to wear a uh, sort of religious headscarf. And these women are brave enough to protest. They're standing on fences in the street. They're taking off their religious headscarves and they're holding them in protest saying, I will not be bowed by these religious leaders. I, I defy, and they're getting arrested by the hundreds. Mm -hmm. They're being you know, tossed into prisons and so on. And so if you take the meaning of words seriously, you can't say that a woman who's Arab, who's Muslim, who serves in Israel as a diplomat, for real, I'm not, this is not a made up example, is suffering apartheid. And a woman in Iran who is being arrested for taking off a religious headscarf that's religiously, that is legally, she's legally required to, she's not subject to gender. Now, so there's, there's a real problem here in how people are thinking, or maybe you might say there's ignorance, but if one's really using this sort of term, one's responsible for learning more about what's going on. And Iran isn't, I mean, Iran isn't nearly as bad as Saudi Arabia is in terms of its treatment of women. So the issue of um, um, sort of the, the stratification of society of saying these people are, are top, these people are subordinate, um, that is the sort of, that is the norm in practically every country in the Middle East with the exception of Israel. So that if you are the wrong sect of Islam in Egypt, if you're not a Sunni Muslim, if you're a Shiite, which is the minority, you you don't have a good life. You will get um, you will get uh, fewer opportunities. You won't get jo many jobs. There's real prejudice against you. So though there is that kind of thing, that is not the case um, in in Israel. Even if you can point to real problems that people suffer, and and the other thing is. In Israel, there are, I mentioned problems that the Arab populations who are citizens face uh, and they need to be rectified. But the, a major difference is that within Israel, you have the freedom to fight back. Whereas in a lot of these other countries where there is significant racial and religious prejudice and, and, and the subordination of people because of their minority status, you can't fight back. I mean, to fight back is to invite more uh, hostility towards you, legal and, and uh, there's vigilante hostility too. Um, so if you are a Copt, which is a sect of Christianity in Egypt, and your church is burned to the ground by jihadist vigilantes, which is something that's happening, where do you go? You, do you go to the police who enabled it and look the other way? Um, at least in Israel, which is, I mean, there's sort of a, a, a doc, side to, there's a good side to the dark side if you're a palestinian whose land has been 
um, whose crops have been damaged by Jewish veg vigilantes who hate you and have prejudice against you, you can go to court and you can, you can seek legal redress. Now, I, I would like to think the courts do their job, but at least you have that opportunity. Um, and again, the, the apartheid epithet is, is a loaded term. And I think it's, if you don't want to cheapen its meaning by applying it to things that it doesn't apply to. And I think that's part of the problem that happens when, when it's applied to Israel. So I think that really captures the complexity of this issue. We haven't even begun, David. Right. Um, so it, I, wrote, I wrote a book on this subject, which will, I mentioned again, that it's called What yeah. Justice Demands uh, American and Israeli Palestinian Conflict. And, and even that book doesn't cover everything. And I, I start the book off saying, I'm just picking out the core issues. So yeah, it's a complicated subject. And so before we get to the Q&A, and I'll encourage everyone to submit their questions, I want to bring it back to the title of the talk. So I think my understanding is the reason I should care is because it's such a complex moral issue. Like this is something that we really need to figure out and be on the right side of because it's kind of a concretization of a lot of the debates going on about what is right in the world. Is, is that why I and yeah. other people should it care? It's a moral issue, and what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. So there's all kinds of ways in which it impacts our, us here. Uh, and I mean, the, the one piece I didn't mention is the sort of the foreign policy side of it, which is really important. Uh, the, one of the, my criticisms of American foreign policy towards Israel and towards the Middle East in general is that we haven't taken morality seriously. And one consequence is that we empower, we, we sell out good people. We sell out the people who really want a freedom and a good life in Israel, among the Palestinians and throughout the Middle East. And we empower the evil people, the people who are not concerned with human life, who are hostile to freedom, and particularly the jihadists. And that's been happening for decades now. So that's, so it's, there's a moral issue. One has to know who stands in the right and who stands in the wrong. And the stakes are, it, it you know, sort of ripples back wherever you look in the Middle East and, and beyond. Okay. Yeah. So I think that it does capture it well for me and hopefully for the, the viewers as well as to why this issue is worth the amount of discussion it gets. Um, before we go to the q and I want to just take a quick poll of the people watching on Zoom. We'd like to get an idea of how familiar you are with Ayn Rand and her ideas. So if you can take a second to answer the poll, um, it would be great. And then we will switch to our Q&A period. So one thing I, I wanted to mention, David, since it didn't, um, it, I think it's relevant to thinking about what sort of our conversation so far, and I hope it'll come up in the question period too. Uh, so my views on this subject are uh, they're informed and shaped and, and really deeply influenced by Ayn Rand's ideas and her philosophy. Uh, and, and what I'm sort of the work that I've done is to apply those principles and ideas to sort of both how to frame the issue and how to understand it. Um, and that's partly why I emphasize the focus on the individual and on freedom yeah. and sort of being left to live by your own judgment. So th those are some things, just some points of contact that I think are important to, to indicate. Um, and we can talk more about how that plays out. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, I appreciate the, the note and the emphasis. Um, so I'm gonna end the polling now. Thank you for those who responded. Um, and Elon, the first question we have is from Yair on Zoom. He wants to know, what is your opinion of Trump's so-called deal of the century? Okay, so this is this was released yesterday, and I, I'm I started reading the details. Uh, uh, so for people who are just sort of catching up, um, there's been for years now Trump has promised to release a, a deal that would solve this conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, the so two I have some impressions. I don't have a considered view, but my first impression is uh, I think it it it's. Uh, the kind of deal that the Israeli government, I think would be really happy with, and many Israelis would be too. Uh, and I think there's definitely an element of 
I don't think anyone thinks this is going to work in that the Palestinians haven't been talking to the White House for three years and they're not part of this and so no one thinks this is uh, realistic. But the wider point, this is the second thing I would say is uh, I didn't expect it to be, whatever the contours of the deal, I didn't expect it to really uh, have any chance of solving the problem because the, the basic premise of these, this deal and I think previous deals for sure is that uh, they, they don't really take seriously the moral issues and evaluate both sides. So this deal is very favorable to Israel. And you might say, oh yeah, they're recognizing Israel's in the right. But I don't think that's the way to take it because you would have to have a view of what their assessment is of the Palestinian side. And there's still sort of grudging um, acceptance of the basic Palestinian goal which is to have an independent state. Now it's a, it's a much more delimited kind of state. It's not gonna have the same features as other deals have promised. But my criticism has been for the, of all the previous deals, and I think it'll apply to this one when I finish analyzing it, is you, you can't have that premise. It's not, it's not legitimate to think that the solution, a necessary part of the solution is a Palestinian state. I think that has to be rethought Actually, I think a Palestinian state is a is a possibility in the distant future, only if certain things change fundamentally in the Palestinian society. And the main ones are that their view is a state should be to protect people's freedom and not to wage war on a free society, which has been their view so far. So, um, I don't think a state is a necessary condition of solving this, and, and this plan has something like that. Um, I think the Palestinian movement, and let, let me just uh, uh, indicate what I think the, the right path would be. The Palestinian movement, which is who's running the two areas now, needs to be defeated. It needs to lose its, its basic goal, which is to inflict harm and destroy a free society and impose its own kind of uh, dictatorial theocratic rule. That's not a legitimate goal, and it can't be allowed to persist, even in a more delimited constrained state. And so long as that's permitted, I think it's not going to solve the basic problem. All right. Thank you. Hopefully you hear that answers your question concisely. I want to call attention again. If anyone else has questions, please do submit them on Facebook, YouTube, Zoom, or Periscope. Um, so next we have a question from Yan or Jan on YouTube. Um, sorry if I mispronounced your name. Uh, why do you consider the freedom, individualism, and democracy practiced in Israel to be superior to the authoritarian collectivist systems practiced by the Arabs or even in Asian cultures? Why is that um, better? Yeah, that goes to a, a, a philosophic issue, which is um, what is the point of a state? What is the moral basis for a society of any kind? And my answer, and this is inspired by Ayn Rand's political thought, is that the purpose of a, that you start in morality with the life of the individual and in a moral or just society is one that protects the individual's freedom to live according to his or her best judgment, their rational judgment and, and enable to trade with other people, to start a business, to work, to create um, and to, to, to thrive. That, and that's the, that's the purpose so that's the moral basis for having a society and a society that is essentially free is a good one. Um, so that is the framework that I have. And I don't, I don't think of, um, and that would be the standard I would apply to any country, not just Israel. And, that, and when I think of the United Kingdom where I grew up or France where I have relatives or any country in Europe or the United States, what makes it a good or bad country? It's, how it measures up against that standard of individual freedom and protection of that uh, freedom. So if you, if you use that yardstick and you look at Israel versus say Lebanon or Egypt or Jordan or Iran or Saudi Arabia, Israel is way freer. And, it, and that's a good thing because if you care about human life and, and the, the ability of individuals to live and, and uh, create and prosper, that's the standard you should be applying. And I think th there's no question that the, the rest of the Middle East is not at all free. And, and, and in many cases, it's horrifically uh, authoritarian and dictatorial. Um, 
and I think that's they're really bad countries in the Far East and in Asia too. I mean, think uh, this is not sort of the scope of our conversation today. But if you think about Russia, uh, they left communism behind, but what they have now is something like fascism and authoritarianism under Putin. North Korea, it's a hellish, hellish society. So wherever you look, there are countries that are good or bad, and the standard has to be, in my view, um, individualism and individual rights as, a, as sort of the political expression of that. And I think, you know, the way I would put it is, if I even thought I could survive by moving to one of these countries, would I? Right. So just from a common sense perspective, it's which countries would you want to move to or not? And then you can get into the philosophic issues as to what is causing those conditions to exist. Yeah. And that, that's a good way to put it, David. And actually, in my book, which I mentioned, uh, What Justice Demands, I start off by asking people, where would you rather live? And then I describe different societies. And, and that question assumes that the, re the reader or the person considering it does want to have a good life, does want to be free, does want to have um, the ability to express their mind and influence politics and shape the future of the society and does not want to live as the slave of some ruler. Um, but it's important to get that that question underlying it is that philosophic question, what kind of life do you want? And what kind of life is good for an individual? Yeah, definitely. Um, so now we're going to switch to a comment we got from Ron on YouTube, and I want to get your thoughts of uh, what you think about this claim. Um, Ron says, we are supposed to care about a country that was started by a group of Europeans who had their property and land stolen from them and then stole the land from the Palestinians? No. So it's this claim that, yeah, the Jews after World War II went and stole the land from the Palestinians to create this nation of Israel. Yeah, so what I would suggest is that that's not historically accurate. Um, the, the settlement of Israel by Europeans and then later by people from uh, Arab countries who were Jewish, who emigrated there in the 50s and later, uh, it was done on land that was purchased um, pre predominantly. And I, I go into this in, at length in the book. So there, um, that's one of the, it, so, just as a matter of historical fact, you can find evidence of purchase records and there's all kinds of dis discussions about what would happen to tenant farmers, how, how much would they be paid, if at all, for relocating, uh, finding other work, what, you know, what rates of the land be sold. And the people who owned the land who sold it made a lot of money and that's a matter of record. Um, so I don't think the claim that the land was stolen is historically accurate. You might argue that some of the transactions were not right or there, there was shady dealing with some of them and you would have to look at that and maybe there are some of those transactions, but the, the predominant way in which land was acquired was through trade. Uh, and the second thing that's relevant for thinking about this is sort of the, sometimes the claim is whether they own title deeds or not, all the people living there who are to describe themselves as Arabs, they owned the land because they were there first. And that's just not uh, neither historically right nor sort of morally uh, accurate to think about how uh, people come to have property claims in land. So simply because I'm a, I live in a house and pay rent for it does not mean I own it. I mean, I have certain claims as a renter, but I don't own the land. Um, and just because I was born somewhere doesn't mean I have a claim to the land either. Ownership in land and property, I mean, it was fairly well developed by the time this was unfolding. Uh, it, does not, it, is, it does not happen because of your ethnicity or your tribal affiliation or your ancestral history. It's a matter of actual trade and legal institutions that make it possible. And so I, I reject that premise which is sometimes, I don't know if this is what the commenter is raising, but that's something you often hear, is that they owned all the land, it's Arab land. And that's just not the right way to think about it. Oh yeah, I actually didn't know it was purchased and, and that, so it's something I'll look into more. Um, yeah, but let me add one more thing. So, sorry, yeah. um, the, the issue of, um, and again, the, the, the the idea that the land was stolen, the history doesn't bear that up, uh, but then you get all sorts of claims about how um, the, um, the Jews have claims to the land. Now, I think that's problematic too, <laughs> because it, it, if one group doesn't have tribal or ancestral claims, neither does another. What really matters is 
taking seriously that property, there's a, there's a, a, a rational process for entering into ownership of property in land. And that's, that would be the basis for it. Now, there are reasons why Jews went to that part of the world, and that has to do with their history and their heritage, and I can understand that, but it does not translate into, well, we own the, we, we have the, the Bible is our title deed to the land. That doesn't make sense any more than uh, the land belongs to us because we're Arabs. Right. I think that's, unfortunately, we won't have time to dive into that whole issue of it, because there's, you know, comments about if you just have two religions fighting over, like, silly religious history rights to the land, then we're not going to get anywhere. But I want to get to this but question. That, but that's, sorry, but let me just, <laughs> but I yeah. think that's really, I don't know if we can get into it fully, but I don't right. think it's right to view this as essentially a conflict over land. So, mm -hmm. like, cause it is often seen as there's two tribes and they're forever going to hate each other and it's one piece of land. So how is this ever going to be resolved? And I don't think that's at all the right way to think of it because what happens when you get the land? What does it look like? What kind of society do you build? And that's the philosophic political question. And that's yeah. where you can apply the standard of, well, if you want the land for a free society, that's good. If you want the land because you want to tyrannize and you want to exclude and you want to create a kind of racist society, that's not a good thing. And we should be able to adjudicate that based on sort of the political manifestation of what the society looks like. Um, and so um, the, um, the, the kind of and I understand that why people are defeatist about this because it does look like that, but that's part of what I think is important to do is to reframe what's actually happening in this conflict away from the sort of it, what I think of as a superficial understanding of two tribes, one piece of land, ergo it's it's insoluble to understanding that what we're what we need to to sort of figure out here is. Um, what kind of society sh is good and who's trying to build that and, and support those who really want freedom. And, and some of them are among the Palestinians and many of them among the, the sort of Israeli population. That's where our concern should lie. Okay, and this kind of leads into this question from, from Paulin on YouTube, because you say that's where our concern should lie. And, you know, that comes across as potentially ours as a society or something, what he wants to know, is it selfish to care about Israel? How, how do I benefit? Will it make me richer? Why, why should I care about this? Or is it for the good of others? Well, I, I wouldn't counsel you to, to be concerned with Israel for anything but your own interest. And I think one part of my interest is knowing and understanding and, and advocating for what I think is right, morally right. So I'm interested in foreign policy and I, this is one reason I studied it, but what I came to understand is, um, so to put it differently, before I got interested in this topic, I, I didn't have any kind of stake in this. It didn't matter to me. Maybe mm -hmm. I was a bit like where you started, David, when you opened this conversation. I mean, I grew, I grew up there from zero to six I had relatives, but I wasn't at all vested in this conflict or I didn't really care about it. But what I understood is that, um, I mean, a couple of things which we've already touched on, but I'll sort of bring the threads together. Uh, it, it, I think it does matter and it should be in one's interest to stand for freedom as a principle. And that's what motivates me. And to see it, to see it manifested and to see people striving for it. I care about people seeking freedom in Hong Kong I care about people seeking freedom in, in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in Egypt, everywhere the people want freedom. I, I want to be on their side and whatever I can do, and maybe I can't do anything, but at least giving them moral encouragement is important. But then if you understand that issue, it helps to clarify what's going on in this case. And there's a real injustice here. The, some of the injustice is the kind of issues you raise, which is this hyper-focus on Israel, which is not warranted in terms of its actual record in terms of individual rights. But more than that, it, is, it has become in the matter of 70 plus years or so, this real powerhouse of innovation, technology, and economic. I mean, I have on my countertop in my kitchen this thing that I love and it makes bubbly water. It's, made, it's called SodaStream. This is not a commercial for that, but I think that's a really cool invention and I like it. But there's so many other things and, and, and advances that are made possible by um, the, the existence of a free society anywhere, and in particular Israel is one of them. So, um, I mean, those are some of the things that I think I think of. Um, and if, you know, 
if you are unmoved by moral issues and unmoved by sort of principle, uh, sort of the, the, the striving for freedom and the, the attempt to create a free society, okay, we, we need to have a different conversation because that's not really specific to this. Um, so those are just some impressions on that. And, and so, I would say re read my book because I, I yeah. think part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to convey people, convey to people what it is that's at stake. And, I, and we've touched on different aspects of that, but I understand the question. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, um, I think there are real uh, values at stake here. And so I want to highlight that you said you didn't used to care. And when I posted, someone commented on the, uh, the promo calling me an idiot because I don't, just inherently support a country made for my protection because I'm, I have a Jewish heritage. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? All Jews should just be super pro-Israel because it's for my livelihood or something. I, I don't think that's a helpful way to think of it. Uh, I, you should care about it so long as and to the extent it's a free society that if you had reason to go there, it would be a kind of place that would be hospitable to your life. Um, I don't think you have a duty to be loyal to it, right or wrong. Because I think, I mean, any country, any free country can deteriorate. I mean, we've seen that happen in various places and Israel could deteriorate. And should you still be loyal to it because you're a Jew? That, to me, that would be basically like saying, well, North Korea went really dictatorial in the past, you know, in the 20th century. I'm still loyal to North Korea. That would be crazy. So you have to yeah. be concerned with it for its essential character if it's a so if it's fundamentally good and the same could happen in America. So if America becomes like, you know, Gilead from the handmaid's tale, it becomes a theocracy. You could, it would be wrong to be patriotic to that. So what really matters is the moral character of the country and understanding it and knowing it. And if you don't know it, then you can learn more and kind of form a view and you can decide what matters to you or not. But, um, I don't think it makes sense to be automatically in favor of any country. You should be in favor of it only to the extent that you think it aligns with rational pro-life values. Pro-life meaning pro-human life, not in the kind of dog whistle uh, abortion sort of way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank you for all of your time and for your answers. I think it's really helped me kind of understand and answer my question. That was the, you know, the basis of this webinar. Um, so thank you, and thanks to everyone who tuned in. Um, we want to let you know that there's some suggested reading. If, Elon, you can talk briefly about if people want to learn more, why, what are the resources and why are these um, good for this topic? Sure. Why don't you put them, uh, why don't you just play them all and I'll just mention a word. I think there's no place to start except with Ayn Rand's sort of philosophic framework, which is what I take as my approach in the book and my approach to this issue. And I, I would, I think it's hugely valuable whether you're interested in the Middle East or not, just to understand Ayn Rand's political thought. And a terrific place to start is capitalism, the unknown ideal. And the other place on her, her moral theory is the virtue of selfishness. I think those are just seminal books, uh, radical in their, what they're arguing and in their approach. And they're, they offer principles that I think are super clarifying if you want to understand uh, uh, complex issues. And I think everything, the, more, the deeper you get into anything, the more you realize it's complicated. And that's true of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so I mentioned my book briefly. Um, if you're interested in this issue and you want to get uh, sort of more in-depth uh, perspective on it, that's what I would recommend after you read or, or if you've already read Ayn Rand. Um, so that's a... Uh, and it's an analysis that assumes objectivist principles or applies them, and, but, um, but in a way that I think puts them, there's, they're more in the background, but they're uh, very much the framework of what you hear, you read in the book. Great, thanks. Um, and I want to let people know that next week for the webinar, we will be joined with, by Ankar Gatte to talk about is doing drugs wrong and really kind of exploring the issues of drug use and morality. So be sure to check that out. And then if you have questions for a future webinar, please email us at webinars at einrand.org. Um, we're always interested in what topics you'd like to hear a full session about, or if you have specific questions as well.
So thank you all for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, Elon. Thanks, goodbye.